are going to let the scriptures um, walk us through tonight. And so I invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open up to Luke chapter 23. Kind of sticking with Luke this year, this season. We were already in Luke earlier, uh, last Sunday, dealing with the triumphal entry of Jesus, which is itself an ironic name for it. I'll explain that in just a moment. But Luke chapter 23, picking up in verse 20. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. He says that at least twice. Pilate thinks if I can just put some bruises on him, maybe they'll back down. If I can just draw some blood, maybe they'll feel sorry for him and back away. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection. You know his name, Barabbas. For insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. He delivered Jesus to their will. A a week ago, we were talking about the triumphal entry. Triumphus is what it's called. In the Latin, I can't even pronounce it right, but it's, it's where we get the word triumph, and it's called the triumphus, a victory parade given for a Roman general who returns from a decisive military campaign. He's won the battle, he's won the war, and they line the streets, and they throw out perfume, and they shout, and they praise, and it's a wonderful day, but by all human reckoning, Aside from the brief acclaim of the crowd and perhaps successfully managing an unbroken donkey's fold down a very steep decline of the Mount of Olives, there was very little triumphant about that Friday. In fact, the comparison of Palm Sunday to a Roman triumphus ends right there. Now, now we can look back. We understand why we call it a triumphal entry because we know what happened at the end of the week. But if you're just looking at what took place on that day that Jesus rode the foal into Jerusalem, you would have to wonder, how is this like a a Roman general's triumph? His triumph was unlike any in all the ages, even in the midst of the parade. Remember what he did? No Roman general or centurion would ever do this. Jesus stopped the parade and wept for the city. Bizarre. Strange, seemingly out of place, but that's what began, as we talked about last Sunday, the week of passion. The passion is not only the cross. The passion is the entire week. The passion speaks of the heart of Jesus. And what followed that triumphal entry and that passionate weeping over a city that he knew was doomed to great despair, the intensity just increased throughout the week. Think about it, from the cleansing of the temple to turning the arguments of the critics back on their own heads, from foretelling his own death and resurrection, again, to prophesying of his glorious return. So people listening to this and gathering around and paying attention and hearing from his voice dire warnings 
to those who would reject him and washing his followers' feet. There's an oxymoron for you. Think about that. He washed the feet of the people who followed after him. <laughs> Strange. It was the strangest of all Passovers as Jesus positioned himself to be the lamb. It's me, guys. This has all been pointing to me. And from the upper room across the Cadron to Gethsemane, where he prayed and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground, Luke 22, 44. From his betrayal and arrest and abandonment in that garden, directly into a night of fraudulent trials, no less than six different trials that he was dragged one to the other across Jerusalem, back and forth, beaten and maligned at each and every one. Triumphus? I'll tell you what, that Friday morning dawned a far cry from the triumph of a week prior. As Pilate delivered, as it says, delivered Jesus to their will. The will of lost, sinful, dehydrated humanity. Picking up in verse 26, when they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus, which means that Simon of Cyrene was the first man in history to take up his cross and follow him, exactly as Jesus had asked you know, when you take up your cross, the impact is far-reaching. It goes way beyond sore shoulders or even self-sanctification. It's not just about you. We make everything about us. That's just kind of the way we're built. We tend to center in on ourselves, even unknowingly. But to take up my cross and follow him has far-reaching implications for, for my wife, for my children, for my friends, for my family. It goes beyond me, as it did with Simon. Mark chapter 15, verse 21, names Simon's boys. Alexander and Rufus. I like Rufus. Any of you pregnant moms, think about Rufus for a name. That's a good one. And they were probably named in Mark 15 because they were well known in the early church. The sons of Simon of Cyrene. By the way, Cyrene was in North Africa. So that tells us something about Simon and his family. It's apparent that Simon, his wife, who is also mentioned in scriptures, I'll show you, and his sons became the first African Christians. Pretty cool. Romans 16, 13. Paul says, greet Rufus. No doubt the same Rufus. A choice man in the Lord also, listen to this, his mother and mine, that would be Simon's wife. So because Simon was contracted in the moment, conscripted, if you will, to take up Jesus' cross and follow him, his entire family would be changed. But whatever spouses or sons or daughters or family or friends do, you follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Verse 27, and following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. The week began with Jesus weeping for the city. It ended with weeping for Jesus. Yet their weeping was without comprehension. They, they didn't understand really what, the, it was a horrific scene, obviously. 
Some were confused by it, but they didn't fully comprehend even why they were weeping. And so Jesus, verse 28, turning to them said, listen to this carefully, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say, to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? The Gospels tell us that Jesus spoke several things from the cross. Seven in all told, between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Seven statements of Christ from the cross. Three are right here in Luke. You'll hear them tonight. But what's interesting to me is that these, verse 28 through 31, are the only documented words of Jesus en route to the cross. These stand out as, as unique, spoken as he was making his way to the cross. That's remarkable because of all the pain and, and, the, and the difficulty of just moving and breathing. Remember, his back had been scourged. 39 lashes. It would have been, I'm not even going to get graphic tonight because I don't think it matters, it's important, but his back was a mess. His brow was bleeding from the crown of thorns. He had been beaten about the face. You, you know the story. The Bible even implies unrecognizable. And he's making his way to his final crucifixion. Jesus knows what crucifixion is. Everybody did. And as he does so, he has the presence of mind to, de to deliver a razor-sharp, triple-edged prophetic word. Just remarkable to me how on point Jesus remained, regardless of what was happening to him or around him. Three edges to this prophecy. First edge, Jesus repurposes a prophecy that was originally given by Jesus, mind you, to Hosea, regarding Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel before it would fall in 722 B.C., about 20 years before that, Hosea wrote, chapter 10, verse 8, also the high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. And then what they will say to the mountains, note this, verse 30, they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. So Jesus now takes this prophecy that Hosea spoke, and it happened, and it was fulfilled, first edge, against northern Israel when the Assyrians destroyed it in 722. Well, he, he takes hold of this and brings a second edge. The second edge of the prophecy is to these women. He repeats his tearful warning of five, six days earlier at the start of the week. His weeping for Jerusalem, he restates this, and, and it is a sense. You know, weep not for me, he says, but for yourselves, for your children. Daughters of Jerusalem, he says. You're weeping for the wrong person. This is going to come upon you, this prophecy. And by quoting what happened to northern, Jerusalem, northern Israel, the northern kingdom, he now says this same type of event is about to befall Jerusalem. Second edge. But there's a third edge to it. And it's, it's indicated by the final statement 
Jesus makes here that gives us a hint as to when this prophecy would be fulfilled. He says, what will happen when the tree is dry? If they'll do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when the tree is dry? And you have to ask the question, what tree? What tree is he talking about? My friends, the tree is not Jesus. He's not talking about being alive, green, and then being in the grave, dry. If they'll do this while I'm alive, what will happen when I'm dead? That's, that's not what he's saying. The tree is most assuredly a fig tree. The fig tree, Israel. Well, how do you know that? Well, earlier in the week, he cursed a fig tree. Do you remember that? They're coming into town. It's breakfast time. He's a little hungry. He goes to a fig tree to, to get an early fig. He looks. There's no figs. He curses it. Next time they walk by the tree, Peter goes, Lord, look, the tree, it's, it's withered from the roots up. That's the tree you cursed. Peter is freaking out. I don't blame him. But the fig tree was withered and dry. Also, earlier in the week, Jesus spoke this parable. This is back in Luke 21, 29. If you want to flip a page back, check this out. Then he told them a parable saying, behold, the fig tree, and Luke adds, and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it, and know for yourselves that summer is near. So also, when you see these things happening, recognize the kingdom of God is near. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away parable of the fig tree. Matthew speaks of it. Matthew 24, Jesus is quoted telling the same exact parable, although in Matthew 24, as I just pointed out, he says, behold the fig tree, or he says, learn the parable of the fig tree, and that's where he stops. But here in Luke, it's behold the fig tree and all the trees. And the fig tree is the nation of Israel. It is one of the primary symbols in the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, for Israel as a nation. And the fig tree of Israel dried up in A.D. 70. If they'll do things like this when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What has happened? What did happen? The things done to and against the Jewish people should have ended them. For some 1,800 plus years, about 1,823 or so years, Israel appeared as though dead, kicked out of nation after nation after nation, brutalized, beaten, moved about. Ultimately, we saw the Holocaust take place. And then, miraculously, it just greened up. May 14, 1948, the miraculous rebirth of the Jewish nation in this generation. And I am convinced that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But as this generation passes, and you don't have to look far for proof on this, the fig tree and all the trees are getting dry. The fig tree Israel, what are all the trees? All the nations. Learn the parable of the fig tree and all the trees. If the fig tree is the nation of Israel, all the trees speaks of many nations. Ray Rimpton, his fantastic uh, book, and I, I'm trying to remember the title of it. I think it's a, I'll remember it and I'll tell you. 
A Season for All Times or something like that. But, but it's an excellent book. And in this, he shows how in 1948, truly, Israel was reborn a nation. You know what happened immediately after that? Soviet Union collapsed. And all of a sudden, all kinds of nations sprung up. In fact, I think there's a list of about 28 to 30 nations that sprung up when the fig tree greened up, so did all these other trees. It's remarkable. But the fig tree Israel, all the trees, he says, if they'll do this when the tree is green, what about when it is dry? And things are getting dry. The nations are drying up. This nation is drying up. Morally, spiritually, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 says, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful for those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. And this nation has, in its days, received a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Thorns and thistles. I don't even have to go into what happened at the Capitol earlier today. Just yet another act of senseless violence. But earlier today, I also, I heard, I, I, this, I don't know if you do this, I, I do this more often than not these days. I, I turned on the news and within 30 seconds just turned it off. It, it's really exercise for my, for my thumb, you know, click, click. And they were talking about how Ted Cruz and, e, and AOC are having a Twitter war and the, the newscaster, the talking head at that moment, made a comment that this is really fun to watch. And I went, fun to watch? Fun to listen to politicians bicker and scorn and backstabbing and, and one-upmanship and biting at each other? And you know, my friends, thorns and thistles. That's what happens when the tree goes dry. Isaiah had a prophecy about this, similar to all of this. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, I'll just read this to you. It says, the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The, the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. Why should he be esteemed? What will happen when the tree is dry. Jesus said in John 15, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, right now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, okay, Rick, I came here on a Friday night, you're bumming me out. It's Good Friday. It's not Resurrection Sunday. Come back Sunday. We'll smile a lot. 
But Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, and coming back to this prophetic word of Jesus as he's making his way to the cross, we hear its ultimate fulfillment, the third edge of the prophecy. Revelation 6, 16, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Because the fig tree and all the trees that are dangerously dry right now and dangerously dehydrated right now, can you imagine what happens when the living water is removed from this world and there's nothing but dryness and there's nothing even to quench the spiritual parchedness the the moral desiccation only the living water can give relief in the arid climate of these last days people are looking for relief everywhere right now they're looking for some sense of peace they're looking for some calm they're looking, looking to quench a dry mouth and the trees are getting dry. That's the climate of the last days. And again, the living water will soon cease to flow in this world. But again, it's absolutely amazing to me that Jesus, in the pain of his passion, was still focused on us. Was thinking about this lost world. I think it was Jake who just said the other night, and I love that. He never thought about himself. He never focused on himself, even in the most painful moment of his life, he was thinking about you and me. And that's grace. So he continued on to the cross, verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. We're so used to the idea of Jesus crucified in the middle with a criminal on one side and a criminal on the other side, we don't even think about how shameful that was. What a lie that was. You know, call up our sense of justice in our, in our hearts. That is not okay. He's innocent. They're guilty. And, and, and to put him up like that, this innocent man, so wrong. Isaiah 53 verse 9 tells us his grave was assigned with wicked men. That was the assignment. Now, that wasn't the end result. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and it should have been, in fact, after the crucifixion, Jesus should have been dumped in a mass pauper's grave for criminals. That's where the bodies would normally go. But you know something different happened, and we'll come to that in just a minute. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. The skull. You know the Hebrew name Golgotha. In fact, Golgotha is actually a Greek transliteration of Golgolet in the Hebrew, which means the skull. Luke, writing primarily to a Greek audience, he just calls it what it was, the skull. He calls it in Greek, cranion, the cranium. And of course, the Latin name is Calvaria, Calvary. It's still there, by the way. Some of you have seen it, that hill, that skull-faced hillside. That I, I personally think that is the true side of the crucifixion. There's argument about it, and there are different opinions in Jerusalem as to where it was 2,000 years ago. I find it marvelous that God never points to the place in the scriptures. Not exactly. He gives a few little hints here and there. But, but he never gives directions to the place of the cross because we would turn it into an idol in a heartbeat. And so we, we don't know, but when we go to Jerusalem, we go to the place that 
I personally believe is Golgotha, Cranion, Calvary. And what's really interesting about it is that this hill that you, you want to see, when, when, you, when you go there as a pilgrim, you want the experience, you know? You, you want to sit down and just look at the hill and, and imagine what Jesus did. And you want to be prayerful and, and devoted and quiet. And it's really hard to do because right below the hill is a noisy, oily, greasy Palestinian bus station. I mean, one of the noisiest spots in Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, and the downshifting. You know, people getting on and off the buses. And, and, and you take a group there. I'll never forget the first time we took a group. And we sat down in this nice little area, covered area. And our guy was there and he had to stop for a minute because it was so loud down there in the bus station. I'm like, shut up, this is Calvary. I'm trying to have a moment here. It's perfect. It's just perfect. Jesus died for a clamoring, noisy, smelly, greasy, lost world. Hold that thought. Verse 34. So he's now up on the cross. He's now at Calvary. But Jesus was saying, First thing out of his mouth on the cross, first statement of Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. The first of Luke's three quotes of Jesus, we now hear as Jesus is on the cross of Calvary, and it's the very first thing he spoke. First words out of his mouth, Father, forgive. The word forgive there is aphes. It's from the word aphiomai. And literally translated, aphiomai, listen to this, means let it go. Let it drop. Just, just drop it. Father, let it drop. They don't know what they're doing. Please understand this. This is so important. Forgiveness is not forgetting. If you've ever thought that I have to, to truly forgive, I have to forget, good luck with that. Because forgetting doesn't happen all too easily. I can offer forgiveness for someone, but every time I see them, <laughs> it's still there. I remember. Now, I may be kind, and, and, and I may have moved past it in my heart, but listen, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness, true forgiveness, is letting it drop. Let it go. Drop it, man. And you have taken the step of forgiveness. If you've ever struggled with that, yeah, but I still remember. Okay, then let it drop again. You keep letting it drop and letting it drop. Why should I let it drop? Because they don't know what they're doing. And you know what the truth is? Most of us don't. When we wrong somebody, when we hurt somebody, when we offend, we may have some sense of it, but rarely does anyone maliciously know the full extent of their offense against another person. Rarely. And even in the few cases where they do kind of know what they're doing, forgiveness, Christ-like forgiveness, makes the assumption that they don't know. It offers the offender the benefit of the doubt. They can't possibly know how much they hurt me. And that's the reality. It, it takes us some time to start to comprehend when we are the offender what we've really done. That it wasn't just a moment. There, there was so much more to it. Jesus says they really don't know what they're doing. 
Charles Spurgeon said, let us go to Calvary to learn how we may be forgiven. And then let us linger there to learn how we may forgive. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the standard. That's the gold standard of forgiveness. Let it drop. They don't know what they're doing. And it's so amazing when we can do that, when we can give people that, the offender who's hurt me, when I can look at the offender and say, he doesn't know what he did. It is remarkable how easy it is to let it drop. And so Jesus did in a remarkable way and in a way that's far beyond any kind of forgiveness that any of us will ever offer. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And and as if proof of this, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. These stupid centurions, clueless wonders at the foot of the cross, having their little games, not even realizing what's taking place there before their very eyes. Unbelievable. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Messiah of God, his chosen one, then if this is the Messiah, prove it. He was. <laughs> he was in the midst of proving it. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the whole point of Messiah's coming, was to save others, not himself. He's in the very act of doing what the scriptures taught Messiah would do when he came, and they couldn't see it. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Or we might say the word of let it drop. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I mean, if it's not bad enough, it's the religious leaders, and it's people in the crowd, and it's even some of the Romans themselves And now the guys on the crosses on either side are hurling insults. And by the way, that's how it started. Matthew and Mark are very clear about this. It was both criminals hurling insults at him. Both were were jeering at him and, and, and sneering at him. Matthew 27, 44, the robbers, plural, who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Yeah, save us. Yeah, come on, man, you're the Christ. Matthew 13, or Mark 15, 32, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. But it's interesting because Luke then comes along and writes one of the criminals, one of the criminals was hurling abuse at him. Something happened to the other one. Something of impact. Jesus stole the criminal's heart, verse 40. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And indeed, we are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So think about this. If, if in the first hand, they both are hurling insults, and after a while, one quiets down, down and then starts to defend Jesus, why the sudden change of heart? He saw forgiveness. He heard Jesus speak the words. And he's watching Jesus. And there's something about watching Jesus that always changes a heart. Like a, like a jolt to the heart. Better than saying, clear, is hearing Jesus say, forgive. And he heard and he watched and he began to be convicted at the innocence of this man and to see it in him. And in verse 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. One of the most wonderful stories. I've always loved this moment. We've narrowed it down to a phrase, the thief on the cross. You know, among Christians, we can just say the thief on the cross, and we all know what we're talking about. The guy who was forgiven who had no business being forgiven. The guy hanging on the cross next to Jesus who was saved immediately and did nothing to deserve it. He didn't even get baptized, man. But saved. A remarkable story. A Hebrew pastor says, Hebrews 3, verse 7, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts and this thief was the first to have his heart go soft today that very day and it proves to us with this thief that paradise can't be achieved it can only be received it's a gift it's what god does it is not what you do it is not what i do and the thief the thief received paradise it also shows us something else, that forgiveness comes first. Forgiveness precedes paradise. Which is interesting because that's how it works in our relationships too, by the way. Forgiveness brings paradise back into a marriage. Forgiveness brings paradise back into a family relationship broken. Forgiveness always comes and then paradise. But forgiveness is the key and Jesus offers it. Now, by Jewish understanding, Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The Jews understood this. That's Sheol. Sheol, in Jewish traditional thinking, was a paradise side, a torment side with a great chasm in between. And that's exactly what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 16. Go read the story. We don't have time tonight. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Check it out. Jesus describes, it's not a parable. He doesn't say it's a parable. And all the characters in it, unlike any other parable, are named. And Jesus describes the truth of Sheol. Kind of opens the, the door a bit so we can look in it and see and go, oh. So when people died pre-resurrection, they either died in faith and went to paradise. Today you shall be with me in paradise. That's where Jesus was going. Or torment if they died rebelling against God. Pre-resurrection. What about now? Paradise side is unnecessary now. 
because the Apostle Paul tells us very clearly. I wasn't even going to go here, but I'm going here. The Apostle Paul says real clearly that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. How is that possible? Jesus died. Jesus paid the redemption price. And now, if someone dies in faith, you go home to be with Jesus immediately. You don't go to paradise Sheol, paradise Hades. You go to be with Jesus. No use for paradise side anymore because you are with him. And, and that's really the point. Check this out. Jesus didn't say, today you shall be in paradise. He said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Because in reality, paradise isn't just a place, it's a person. It's Jesus. How marvelous. That day, the thief was with Jesus in paradise. Wonderful. The used-to-be thief saved and with him. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, that is noon. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Adam Clark quotes, uh, quotes Phlegon, the Roman historian with an unfortunate name, Phlegon. In the fourth century of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night so that even the stars in heaven weren't seen, and there was an earthquake. So this secular Roman historian verifies what Luke just said took place on this day. Matthew and Mark confirmed that there was an earthquake and that the veil itself was ripped, not just ripped, but ripped from top to bottom as though God himself seized that thick woven tapestry and ripped it in half. Because as the Hebrew pastor explains, Jesus became our veil. Hebrews 10 verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Because guess what? Like the thief was with Jesus in paradise, so you, so I will one day be with Jesus in paradise. One day, any day, any day now. Verse 46, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, I need to ask you, would you be quoting Psalms if you were hanging on a cross? <laughs> would you even be thinking of scriptures to quote? Maybe some of you would. But this is remarkable. Earlier, Matthew and Mark both tell us that Jesus quoted directly from Psalm 22, the very opening line, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The humanity of Jesus crying out, but doing so in such a way that says, look at Psalm 22, because that's what's happening right here. Ever the teaching pastor, Jesus says, Psalm 22 describes this, and we read that as we open, and Psalm 22 does describe the piercing of hands and feet and being surrounded by dogs and his bones out of joint and playing for his clothes, casting lots for his clothes. All of it is in that psalm and Jesus said that earlier. But now, now in this psalm, it's the third and, and last quote of Christ on the cross. Well, 
second to last, but it's the third to last in Luke, or, or it's the last one in Luke. It comes from another ancient psalm in which we hear a deep, deep trust when everybody else turns against you. Listen to this. It's Psalm 31, verse 4. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. Psalm 31. Psalm 31 was written by David at a time when he had rescued the men of Keilah. And they turned around. He rescued them from the Philistines, Israel's ancient enemy. They turn around and they betray him to Saul. And so in that state of betrayal, David says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. It is the psalm of the betrayed. How do you handle betrayal? I mean, I'm assuming most, if not all of you, have been betrayed at one time or another. How do you handle that? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says, Being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This verse keeps coming up over the last week. Entrusting himself to God into your hands, I commit my spirit. This is not just about, come get my spirit, I'm ready to die, Father. Oh, he was saying that to a degree, but it was more. I trust you, God. I trust you, Father. I am in your hands. And that's how Jesus handled betrayal. I think that's how we handle any kind of mistreatment in this life is my spirit is entrusted to him. I entrust myself to him. And so Jesus did. But these, by the way, were not his final words. They're the last words he speaks here in Luke. But there was one more, and you all know it was a single word that was uttered with his last breath, John 19, 30, it is finished. In the Greek, die, And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And there was no parade. There was no glory. There was no fanfare, no crowds shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. No donkeys, no palms waved in praise. No triumphus. And yet... Such a different triumph. Something that the world still can't understand. The reason we called the entry into Jerusalem the triumphant, triumphus was this moment because he did triumph. The triumph of sacrifice. And what's amazing to me is that this humble death, a centurion standing there began to tremble at the innocence of the Son of God. Verse 47, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent, or literally, certainly this man was right, was righteous. Matthew and, and Mark heard him say something else. Truly this man was the Son of God. In verse 48, all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. This was, this was a, sign of, a sign of mourning, but in this case, also a sign of contrition. We have done something wrong. They, they began to recognize this, 
still missing the divine, still not understanding this is Messiah, this is God in the flesh, this was a sacrifice for all people for all time, still missing that and yet recognizing this is the day when the light of the world has gone out. Now back to Golgotha for just a minute. The Palestinian bus stop and the smoke and the heat and the noise. What's really interesting about that place is just around the corner of that same hill is one of my favorite places in Jerusalem. It's a garden. Beautiful garden. John 19.41 tells us in the place where he was crucified there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore because of the Jewish day of preparation since the tomb was nearby they laid Jesus there. When you see this rocky skull hill in Jerusalem today, looking much like it did hundreds if not thousands of years ago, you walk from there and begin to walk a path around the hill and you come to a tomb. I'm not saying it's the tomb of Jesus. See, the problem is there's no body, so there's no way to know. But it's a beautiful garden there. And what we see, verse 50, is a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council. That's the Jewish ruling council. Note that. A good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And you know the story, we, we begin to put it together. We, we draw all the witnesses together and we hear from each one of them. And as we hear all of their witness testimony, their eyewitness testimony from four different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we start to sense and see the whole picture, the full beautiful picture. Two men, two men actually care for and entomb Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, owner of the newly cut garden tomb and a member of the Jewish council, and another man, Nicodemus, John 19, 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so even though, Isaiah 53, verse 9, even though his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Yet, though he should have been dumped in a pauper's grave, the body of Christ was lovingly, carefully wrapped and embalmed or anointed and put in a rich man's tomb. He wouldn't need it long. Why were these men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were both Pharisees, both members of the Jewish ruling council, why were they partial to Jesus? I think the answer is in verse 51. Joseph was a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And that's what happens. Waiting for the kingdom of God always makes you partial to Jesus. Always makes you care for Jesus. Waiting for the kingdom of God impacts the heart for Jesus. I'm going to read it again. 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And if you love his appearing, you're going to love Jesus. In fact, to put it more pointedly, Joseph of Arimathea 
and Nicodemus cared tenderly for the body of Jesus because they awaited the kingdom. Do you think, just asking, that might have the same effect on the body of Christ, the church? If we love his appearing and we seek his kingdom, should that not make us love his body more and tend and care for his body more as that day approaches? To be together, to love each other, to forgive, to let things drop, to reconcile, to walk together because, hey man, the kingdom's coming. And you've heard it kind of tongue-in-cheek, I'm sure, a little jokingly, but it's true. We're going to be with each other for eternity. Better get used to each other now. If we are expecting the kingdom, if we are longing to see Jesus, it will make us love his body all the more. Well, verse 54, it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on Shabbat, they rested according to the commandment. And this brings us to the single greatest word in the passion story. Day. Day. Not, not day as in daylight. Day as in the Greek conjunction that begins Luke 24, but, yet, however, this little conjunction, it, it, it breathes an air of hope into a dark moment, into a seemingly dark conclusion, but on the first day of the week. And I love that word, day. Because you know what happened. Divine triumph. And we're going to have to wait until Sunday for that. But let's stand together. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we might add thieves, criminals, crucifixion worthy, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The trees are getting dry. The world is becoming, as I said before, dangerously dehydrated. There is a, a painful, gasping kind of thirst in this world, and it's developing in meanness and immorality and darkness, and we're seeing it all around. And the, the one thing that changes all of it for us, the one thing that allows us to live in this current climate, this arid, dry climate, and still rejoice, it's that one little word, but, but. Yes, he was dead on the cross. Yes, he was taken down, body wrapped and placed in the tomb, but day, the triumph is coming. A triumphant promise. And my friends, Jesus purchased it for us on the tree of Calvary, which is a green tree. 
Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit, the living water, through faith. And Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I say that by way of encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, tonight. In this climate, you don't have to be dry. Come to Jesus and drink. Receive of his spirit. Ask. As he says in Luke chapter 11, just ask. If anyone doesn't have the spirit, ask. And Jesus says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow Rivers of living water. Only Jesus can quench that thirst. Father, we bless your name. And we lift up the name of Jesus above all names. We praise you and thank you again, Lord, for what you did at Calvary, for what you took on yourself at the cross. We praise you for taking our sin right into the tomb and killing it dead. We thank you for the offer of your Holy Spirit to quench our thirst and enliven our hearts. And we thank you, Father, a little bit ahead of time, but we thank you for resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.